Okay, everyone, why don't we stand and read Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds, and your love, and faith, and service, and perseverance, that your deeds are of late, or greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray, so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds." And I will kill her children with pestilence, and the churches will know that I am he who searches the, mi the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give the authority over nations. And if he, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Please be seated. <clears throat> Well, as you can tell by the reading this morning, uh, we are back in our series on Revelation. And our plan now is to work through the entire letter until its completion. We will take a couple of breaks here and there to hit topical things and whatnot, but more or less we're going to continue forward now with hardly any interruption until we finish the letter. But today we're going to be looking at the fourth church and Jesus' messages to the seven churches, obviously the church to Thyatira. Now what's unique about this address it's actually the longest of all the, uh, the letters that Jesus writes. Smyrna was the shortest. Thyatira is the longest message. And so because of that, my sermon is going to be doubly as long. So plan on being here for an hour and a half. Just kidding. Uh, you didn't lose your sense of humor over Christmas. Thank you. So, okay. So, yeah, but it's still, it's the longest sermon, or longest sermon, longest message that Jesus writes. And so it's, um, obviously, he's got a lot to say. But it's also written, uh, obviously, to a church that was known for compromising in its loyalty to Jesus Christ. It was a church that was syncretistic. It was a church that had sort of had this idea of both and Christianity plus, or Jesus plus in their theology. And so, um, uh, yeah, there was no room for compromise in Jesus' eyes. And so he had to write a message. Now, as per usual, we're going to follow our format. Um, just so you know how I break down all my sermons, I always talk about the church and the city. We'll then move to the correspondent, the attribute of God that he describes himself with, the commendation, words of praise, the concern, the re basically the rebuke, uh, the command, what to do in response to the praise and the, and the rebuke, and the call to conquer, to overcome. And so as usual, we ask the Lord to search our minds and hearts as he says he will do with Thyatira, in ourselves now, because we want to apply this to ourselves as individuals. We also want to apply this to us as a corporate church. 
we have to look at ourselves individualistically, but also as a corporate body and as a church family, because we all impact one another. So let's look at the church in the city. Um, Fire Tyra, as you can see, if you go <clears throat> to the top right-hand corner of the page, they're kind of like just beside Pergamum there. And you can tell they're, an in, they're inland, more than uh, Pergamum, Smyrna, and Ephesus before it. And so uh, today, uh, though, Thyatira is known as the bustling city of Akazar. I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Akazar. And it has a population of about uh, 3.5 times Okotoks, 107,000. And uh, this is what it looks like today. Um, obviously, you can tell it's on like a flat plain in, in Turkey. <clears throat> now, this old city, uh, uh, the old city um, is a situated right within this new city. And there's hardly any archaeological remains. If you go there as a tourist, it's, probably, it's really poor in terms of what it has to offer. And I'll just show you an overhead picture. You can see the yellow bubble on top. There's a little square. That little square is old Thyatira in terms of remains. And you can see the whole city around it. So there's very little to see. And it's all sort of quarantined off within, within the, uh, Akazar. But uh, in terms of history and the establishment of the church there, the Bible records virtually no information with the exception of really two texts. Uh, the, the, the one is the one we use every week in Acts 19 and verse 10. Uh, remember the school of Tyrannus was developed in, by Paul in Ephesus. And so he for two years um, taught people about Jesus Christ and, the, and his way of life. And then it says that in Acts 19.10 that the people from the school of Tyrannus then um, went out from there and lived in the province of Asia and they heard about the word of the Lord. And so the school of Toronto seems to be a church planting sort of uh, school that sort of spread the gospel throughout the modern day Turkey. The second text comes from Acts 16, and we're going to look at that in just a second. But because there's very little information, then we, we are forced to go to sort of more extra biblical resources and look at archaeology to, to discover our truths in terms of the city. And I'm always uncomfortable doing that. Um, we know that the word of God is absolute truth and other sources are, 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 could be uh, prone to error. So I always do it with hesitancy, but uh, so you can do with what you will with what I'm about to say to you now. But apparently in relation to the other three cities uh, that we looked at so far, Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum, um, this, and Thyatira was in very many ways the least impressive. Um, in terms of geography, it wasn't a harbor city like Ephesus was, or, or you know, for example, um, in terms of a religious influence, you know, it didn't have the title of Neokaros, remember the temple warden for the, the temple to the Roman emperor. It didn't have that title like Smyrna and Pergamum. But because it was a Roman city, it still was known for its idolatry and paganism. And the chief god they worshiped there was Apollos. Now he was the son, he was called the son of God. Now I think that's important because here in Revelation, you're gonna see that Jesus introduces himself as the son of God. But Apollos was the son of God because he was the son of Zeus in Greek mythology. So if, God, if Zeus is the chief deity and you're the son, you're the son of Zeus, you're the son of God. And so that's the chief god in, in Thyatira. And, but what Thyatira was known for was their trade guilds, their trade guilds. Now this is really important and there's actually archeological proof of this. So we, this is not hearsay. Um, the trade guilds in Thyatira were equivalent to today's labor unions. So a labor union, you know, is an organized association of workers that's often in a trade or profession formed to protect and further their rights and interests. And so there were many trade guilds in, in a Thyatira. And so therefore it was a commercial town known for marketing and manufacturing. 
It was the sort of like the, the hub in Asia. Now I want to show you a, a PowerPoint of the trade guilds. Um, they found these stones. These found these stones archaeologically, and on these stones, it tells you the trade guilds that existed. The trade guilds that existed then were things like leather workers. So Mark, you'd have a, a place in Thyatira <laughs> from, the th from the wallets you make and whatnot. Uh, there were tanners, um, there were potters, there were bakers, and there were bronze smiths and so on. But the main industry in Thyatira was textiles, wool and dyed goods. And this is where our other biblical text comes in in Acts 16. Do you remember Paul? He goes to Philippi, and who does he meet and convert to Christianity there? A woman by the name of Lydia, who was from Thyatira. And do you remember what she sold? It says here, she was a worshiper of God, a seller of purple. A seller of purple. And so, um, purple fabrics. And so she was from Thyatira, and here we are having this woman who's probably in Philippi trying to promote her products. And so that's really cool. We have biblical evidence to support the archaeological evidence that trade guilds probably existed and wool and textiles was indeed their chief industry. But here's where things got interesting as a Christian in terms of trade guilds. If you wanted to do financially, your best chance to advance yourself was to be part of them because it gave you a sense of job security and it gave you a sense of a, a longevity and career. And so belonging to them was good for business. Being not belonging to them was bad for business. So as a believer though, there was a moral conundrum you would face by belonging to these guilds. Because unlike our culture where business, politics and religion are separated, in that culture, business and religion are tied together. So as part of those guilds, you'd have many social opportunities to meet your fellow, your fellow tradesmen. But they would often host these parties and these social events at shrines or at temples. And guess what you did at the temples and the shrines? <laughs> you would participate in the worship of the Roman god, the sun god Apollos, for example, which involved eating meat, sacrificed to the idols there, and often, because of the way the social events worked with the giant parties and as the night went on, you'd get drunk and you'd have giant parties, which led to the sexual immorality that went on in the temples uh, in Thyatira. And so, as a Christian now, there's a dilemma. I either belong to the trade guild, which is good for my business and good for my provision of my family, but if I go to all the social events, I'm going to be forced to compromise in my faith in Jesus Christ. But if I don't go, my career's done, potentially, and I'm in trouble. And so there's this tension, this moral dilemma as a believer as to what you will do. So these are kind of like the backgrounds of what's going on here. And I love this because, you know, I don't know exactly how much of the trade guilds played into the situation here in terms of Jezebel's teaching, this woman there, getting a foothold. I'm not too sure how it totally relates, but what is cool is we do know that the trade guilds existed and that we have archaeological evidence of this and even biblical evidence in Acts 16 and so on of a, of a, a woman who was probably from these. And so, um, but, you know, you can imagine the, the constant tension you were under as a Christian to go, what do I do in these situations? And uh, a commentator by the name of De Silva said it this way, and, and it's true of not just business practices, but of all things in the Roman Empire as a believer. 
he said this, it's not surprising that several early Christian communities wrestled with how low these particular boundaries could be set so as to maximize the benefits of showing solidarity with their neighbors in religious contexts while not violating their, their more exclusive faith. A really good quote, right? Like you want to, so I mean, think about it. You're in business. You're thinking, what's the lowest common denominator I can go in terms of my faith, in terms of Jesus still being proud of me, but still being able to access the benefits of the society in terms of the financial gain? <laughs> I mean, you, you talk about the, the conundrum, and don't we all walk those lines in, in our culture? Aren't you constantly asking yourselves in decisions, what's the, where, where does, what, what's like the lowest common denominator where God still plays with me, but yet I can still like participate in culture? Like you, you walk these tensions all the time. What, what's, what's off the limits? What's not off limits? Like all these things. And we all have to answer, the, answer these questions. And so, again, this is why we meet as a church and we have discipleship because we discuss uh, this type of stuff all the time. So Jesus then has to address this church because there's, there's compromise. And whether the trade guilds have a huge um, aspect to it or not, we don't know. Virtually every commentator I read thinks that's exactly what's going on in the church, but we don't know for sure. But what it is, what we do know for sure is that the real threat was coming internally. The real threat was coming internally, not externally, right? There was a woman in the church teaching them to eat meat sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of sexual morality. And so let's look at the correspondent now, what Jesus says. He says, the son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this. Now, I do believe the son of God reference right off the cuff is in response to the, probably the Apollo, Apollos temple, right? He, he says, you know, you think uh, the CEOs in the trade guilds or you think Apollos is the CEO of this, of this uh, you know, this uh, city? Let me just know I'm the real CEO here. I'm the true son of God. Now listen up. But then he gives images of uh, eyes of, like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze. Uh, this image, these descriptions of himself, comes right from Daniel chapter 10 and verse 4 and 6. So if you want to write a margin, notes in your margin, write Daniel 10, 4, and 6, 4 to 6. And you can look through this up later. But basically there's a figure that Daniel sees there that's dressed in, with feet like burnished bronze and flames of fire. And so there's a debate in, this con in that context whether he encounters the Jesus Christ himself or another angel. But regardless of, of the point there, what we do know is that Jesus takes those attributes from Daniel and applies them to himself. Now, these two images are images of judgment. Images of judgment. In chapter 19, in verse 12, listen to what Jesus says about himself. Actually, starts in verse 11. He says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it, called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and so on. So we know the context here is judgment, with the eyes like a flame of fire. And so he wants to say to the church, I see everything that's going on in there. You're not going to escape my notice. You're not going to pull the wool over my eyes, so to speak, in Thyatira. I see it all. Now the burnished bronze, uh, feet like burnished bronze, is also a picture of judgment, I believe. Now Revelation doesn't speak any further about it, but let's think about this now. Can you, do you remember what the altar, the altar in Exodus, in the tabernacle in the temple was made out of? Made out of bronze. It's the bronze altar. What happens at the altar? 
It's a picture of sacrifice, judgment on sin. And he's near Jesus is standing there in a church where they're going to the temple, right? They're sacrificing to the altars, to these false gods. And he says, I have feet like burnished bronze. This is a picture of judgment again. And, I, and this is, he wants them to see as being probably immovable in his, uh, uh, his attitude towards what's going on in the church. So like every church, um, he doesn't start off with his reprimand. He starts off with his praise. And we pick up the, uh, the, the uh, commendation in uh, verse 19. He says, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. Now, I'm not going to get into what the difference between faith, service, perseverance, and love is. Uh, we kind of hit those attributes a little bit so far in Revelation. But I really want to point out two things here. First of all, they're doing a lot better than Ephesus in the area of love. Ephesus, remember, the first church was, says, I have this against you that you've lost your first love. And we know the essence of love, it's self-sacrifice towards another with no expectation of return. So where Ephesus has failed uh, and is reprimanded, Thyatira is doing really well. And it's leading them to serve others and be faithful and so on and so forth. But what's the coolest thing about here is actually what he says in terms of their spiritual growth. He says, I know that your deeds of late are greater than they were at first. They're greater than they were at first. I love that because he's not saying to them, uh, you, you were not genuine followers before at the inception of your church. But he's saying this, I've noticed a huge change in your progress, in your maturity, in your spiritual growth. And I want to commend you for that. And I think that's super cool because he sees this church as a, in an upward trajectory in terms of spiritual maturity. And they're getting better in, in their love for one another and in their faithfulness to the Lord, and so on, and their service. So I think it's a cool application for us. I wonder how the Lord looks at us as a church. Would he say to us, you know, I look at you from 2020 to 2021, and I would say that you're an upward trajectory, that you, you and your own deeds are, are more faithful, you're, you're greater in your service, and you're persevering, and so on. Or would he say that we're more like Ephesus and our love has grown cold? That can be up for debate and discussion, but it's pretty neat to think that Jesus sees that a church can grow and get stronger and sees that. And so may that be a word of encouragement to us in our own personal walks with him and uh, as a corporate body. So the believers clearly from Christ's perspective had progressed in Thyatira in many areas of the Christian faith, but they also had digressed in another. And so we pick up the, verse, the concern in verse 20. <coughs> Excuse me. He says, I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray, so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Now the concern is twofold here. He, first of all, he's concerned about the presence of the woman who calls herself a prophetess, in other words, a spokesperson for God, who has a foothold in the church in their teaching, and the church there has tolerated it. So one concern is issue of toleration. The other issue is those who've embraced her teaching, those that, who have actually bought her uh, teaching hook, line, and sinker and have embraced that pattern of life. 
But in order to understand exactly what's going on, we need to first look at the woman Jezebel from the Old Testament to get a bigger picture of who she is. Because some of you are familiar with her, some of you have no, absolutely no idea who she is, but all you do know is that no girl in Okotoks was named Jezebel for a reason. And so uh, you'll find out why when we're done. So uh, basically, Israel, uh, the northern Israel, it was like, well, Israel in general was divided into two sections, right? North and south. South was Judah, north was Israel. And uh, King Ahab was the king of Israel, the 10 northern tribes. Well, his enemy nation that bordered him to the north was Phoenicia. Tyre and Sidon was basically the, the main area, but they, we just call it Phoenicia, modern day Syria. And so uh, Israel and Phoenicia are, are enemies, they're borders. And so Ahab, who's the king of Israel at the time, wants to make a treaty with Phoenicia to, for political reasons. And so he does. Part of the treaty is to marry the king's daughter as a way of securing an alliance. So Ahab marries Jezebel, who is the Phoenician king's daughter. She comes into Israel and brings the worship of her pagan gods into Israel. And the two gods that were front and center were Baal or Baal, depending who you listen to, uh, Baal or Baal, and um, Astarte. This is where Astarte is the, the female counterpart to Baal, and that's where we get the Asherah poles. And then the Asherah poles are always linked to fertility rites, like in the, in the Old Testament. That's why with the Asherah poles, when they erected them, there's always sexual immorality going around, going on around that pole. And so around that like phallic symbol, basically. And so what we have then is uh, Astarte and Baal coming in, and it proved to be disastrous for Israel. Um, Je Jezebel's influence solidified the worship of Baal in Israel to a point they never recovered. And despite warnings from God's prophets, men like Elijah and so on, uh, uh, they, God's, they never repented, and so God sent Assyria in to wipe out the northern tribes in 722 BC. Completely took them into exile and put an end to the northern tribes of Israel because of, primarily because of Jezebel and Ahab's influence on the nation. So just to give you an idea context-wise, I believe, I believe uh, that was around 575 AD or BC, 575 AD BC when this all happened. And 722, you take God wipes them out. So looking at about 150 years of watching them embrace Astarte and Bell worship. One of the key texts is found in 2 Corinthians 9.22. At her death, this is what the, the Bible says about her. And I quote from the NET, she was a promoter of idolatry and pagan practices. The NASB, which I preach from, says she was known for her harlotry and witchcraft. Nice description on your tombstone. A harlot and a witchcraft, a witchcrafter, <laughs> a sorcerer, basically. Yeah. So the problem then for Jesus was, first of all, they were tolerating this woman's teaching. And she claimed to speak on behalf of God because she was a prophetess. And so this is really, really important. Um, and this is why also um, Jesus had to say something to the church because they were not to be tolerating, they were to be confronting. They weren't to be tolerating the sin, they were to be confronting this woman. And it's really interesting, isn't it, in our culture uh, regarding the word toleration? Because in our culture, the word tolerate means that you are to be inclusive of all views and all philosophies and all lifestyles, right? 
what's the big sort of uh, comment today by the sort of like the sort of more leftist sort of like political side of our, our culture? They would say that if you're an intolerant person, you're not accepting. You're not accepting. And Jesus says, and, but clearly from the context, Jesus is saying the opposite. That's not the definition of tolerance or intolerance he's using. You see, the word tolerance in Greek actually means to pass by or to pass over. Or I like this, to be let alone or to even abandon. So the problem in Thyatira was that they were allowing teaching to go unchecked that should have been checked. And they were turning a blind eye when they should have their eyes opened. And they should have been confronting it head on and not being inclusive of all views in the church. Now, the question I had is, why were they tolerant? Now, and we don't know. The text never tells us. But it, I know why I would be scared to uh, uh, get myself involved in conflict over uh, watching people in sin. My, my personal thing that always plagues me is I hate confrontation. <laughs> I just don't like it. I don't want to be the guy that goes up to someone on cells and, sa and says, you need to stop this or you need to reconsider your ways because I fear rejection from that person that I might like or love. And let's be honest, if, these are, if, the, if this church started off on a good foot, on a good note, and then Jezebel's influence, this woman's influence, got a hold of the church, and you watched your fellow brothers and sisters going on a dark, dark path, you wouldn't necessarily want to walk up to someone and say, hey, like, have you reconsidered your ways? It's, it's tough to, to think that we'd be given that responsibility. So again, we don't know why they tolerated it, but they did. And Jesus says, you have to deal with this. You can't let it go. And the second concern then was, besides toleration, was those who'd fallen for the teaching and now embraced it. So he says here in verse 20, he says, she's led my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. So we know there was a portion of the church that, that, that went after this teaching, but not all. But not all, just a portion, because in verse 24, he says, But I say to the rest of you who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching. So in the, let's say that we take you know, the, the Genesis house population and divide it 50-50. If there was a Jezebel-type woman in this church, half of you may have embraced the teaching, and then we were tolerating it. The other half didn't embrace it, but, you've, but or, or, yeah, you didn't tolerate it, but you fully embraced it. And so now you're walking in those ways. And so th th those are the two things that were going on. But here's what we do know about our teaching. Because of what it says in verse 20, we know the issue was of, uh, was of venue, not menu. Let me say that again. The issue in Thyatira is of venue, not menu. What do I mean by that? Well, when it says that they were eating meat sacrificed to idols, we know that there were other teachings in the New Testament that happened 40 years earlier by the apostles that said that eating meat sacrificed to idols was okay. Eating meat sacrificed to idols was okay in certain situations. And so in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul said this, So then about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and there is no God but one. Then in, in verse 8, he says, food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat meat sacrificed to idols, and no better if we do. And then in 10.25, he says, eat anything sold in the marketplace without raising questions of conscience. Because in that, in that culture, the meat would be sacrificed in the temple. 
The leftovers would go to a marketplace to be sold for a cheaper cost. And so as a consumer, you like discounts. All of those who love the soup coupons at Sobeys and Safeway, you love those coupons because you like to buy your groceries cheaper. Well, if you're in that Roman Empire, you like your groceries cheaper, so you wait for the meat from the temple to come to the marketplace so you can buy it and get a discount on your food. And so Paul makes it clear, you can eat meat sacrificed to idols. You're no better if you do or you don't. There were three exceptions, though. Number one, if you cause another fellow Christian who believed it was wrong to do that, and you ate it in front of them, knowing that they may want to head back to the temple and worship in pagan idolatry. So if you were a stumbling block, in other words, if you, were, if you made them want to head back into an area of sin for them, then you were not to eat in their presence. Number two was if an unbeliever told you it was meat sacrificed idols. So I go to an unbeliever's house for supper, and, and uh, they all of a sudden announce, Oh, by the way, I got this at the Temple of Apollos. We sacrificed it to our God tonight. At that moment, we're to, say, we're to decline. And number three was in the temple setting. In the temple setting. And so, therefore, we know that this issue then was that she was telling people it was an issue of venue. Because eat, eating, God would Jesus would never reprimand the church for eating meat sacrificed to vitals in and of itself. You were free to eat, 8, 8, 4, 8, 8, and 10, 25. But when you weren't free to eat was in, when you were in a temple or at a shrine when there was worship involved in that process. And I'll prove it to you from 1 Corinthians 10, 14 to 22. He says, therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? He's speaking of communion, by the way. And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that food sacrifice an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? Well, no. And that makes sense. He just taught in 1 Corinthians 8 that it means nothing. However, he says... Uh, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God, and I do not want you to participate with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Where is the table of demons? The altars in the temples at the shrines. And so he says, are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So this is really cool, right? We know, therefore, what Jezebel's teaching, this woman, well, not Jezebel, the woman who characterized Jezebel was saying. She's basically saying this, you guys, Genesis house, you're free to worship the Lord, but you're also free to go to the temple of Apollos, and you can easily participate in the uh, worship of their gods and in the sexual morality that accompanies that lifestyle. You're free. You can be syncretistic. You can have a both-and mentality towards the Lord. Now, how in the world would this uh, come, in, come to be? Well, again, we don't know. We don't know. Perhaps she, she, uh, she was able to jump off the trade guild, uh, you know, potential um, uh, issue that we may go on there and say, you know what, the Lord wouldn't want you to, you know, not accommodate here because, you know, it's better for you to do this than to, and provide for your family or lose providing for your family. 
Or maybe she had the dualistic view of, of the body and spirit like all Greco-Roman people did. What do I mean by that? In the Greco-Roman world, there's a dualistic approach, meaning the body, the physical material is bad, it's evil, and the spirit is good. So in other words, what you do as a Greco-Roman then is you can do whatever you want with your body because that doesn't matter to God. But the spirit, that's the part he cares about. So since you're saved, your spirit's taken care of, that's the part that God cares about, so your body's free to do whatever you want with. That's why in 1 Corinthians 6, he has to write to them, and says, do you not know that when you go and reunite yourself with a prostitute, you're one with her? And that's the famous quote, your body is the temple of the Lord. The thing is, Genesis House, they didn't know that. They didn't know that the body was a temple of the Lord. They, in that culture, they thought God hated the body. And he says, no, 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 don't unite yourself to a prostitute. That's not what God wants for you. But to them, they thought that was normal practice. And so maybe she's jumping off of the Greco-Roman things and thinking, you know what? You know, an idol is nothing. Paul said that in 1 Corinthians 8. And your body is nothing to God, so why don't you go ahead? We, don't, we, we just don't know what's going on. But here's what we do know. She had a foothold in the church. She had one, and the, at least a good portion bought her teaching hook, line, and sinker. And so he had a strong word of warning to both the woman and those who embraced her teaching. Look at the warning in 21. I gave her time to repent, <clears throat> and she does not want to repent of her morality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. <clears throat> Again, notice that he makes a distinction in terms of what he's going to do to the woman who's heading up this practice and those who are going to embrace. There's a distinction. However, even within the distinction, there are three things I want you to notice about God's judgment here. Three things that are all similar. Number one, notice God's heart. I want you to notice God's mercy in this judgment. When you read those words, you might think, whoa, he's harsh. No, he's an amazing, patiently merciful father. Where do we get that? Look at how he was going to deal with the woman in verse 19. Or, uh, sorry, I'm, my, verse 21. I gave this woman Jezebel, this prophetess, time to repent, and she does not want to repent. The Lord is, when he says to her, I'm going to uh, basically throw you in a bed of sickness, that's not God's first decision. That's not God's heart right away. This was going on for a long time in the church, probably. And God was patiently saying, I'm giving you time to change your ways, to change your thinking. He wasn't going after her after the first, the first sort of like sin. He was giving her time to make a change. But she, in her own stubbornness of her own heart, would not change. She would not bend her ways to God. But he's also merciful to the people who embraced. He says, he says um, those who commit adultery with her are going to be thrown into great tribulation unless they repent. So when Jesus writes the warning, he's not even going to say he's going to do it right now after the letter's read. He wants them to hear the letter, and then the, those who've embraced the, uh, the, the teaching have time to respond to Christ's own reprimand of them. So he's not even going to bring judgment right away on them. He's giving them a time to repent. 
So again, watch God's heart in this. This is so important, right? We have to we have to know that even when God judges, it's not his first desire to have to do that. He wants everyone to repent and be in right relationship. That's the kind of Lord we serve. But I also want you to notice the timing and the nature of the judgment, the timing. In both situations, uh, well, actually, I'll start with the nature. In both situations, the, the, it's physical. It's physical judgment. And in terms of the timing, it's not... Uh, in the afterlife, like, you know, when we stand before God of the judgment, it's in this life now. He says, he says, um, I'm going to put her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent. So he's saying this, while you're still alive, I'm going to do this. So God's going to take matters into his own hands because the church won't, but he's bringing physical judgment on them. So what does this bed of sickness mean? Well, um, we, it's not defined, but clearly it's a physical ailment of some kind, a physical ailment. And Gordon Fee said this. I love Gordon Fee. He said, the irony is this. The place of harlotry that Jezebel was promoting, like the bed, right? Commit sexual acts of immorality. The place of harlotry is now the place of illness. <laughs> right? You want to teach people to lay down and be sexually immoral? Well, I'm going to put you on a bed of sickness. Isn't that awesome by fee? That's why I read commentators there. They see things differently than I do and better in many ways. Yeah. So this is what he's going to do to her. And then to the people who've embraced her, he says, I'm going to basically uh, kill your children and give you a time of pestilence. Now, don't think of that God is a, is, a, is a heinous God here out to get your biological children Killing her children is not biological. He's not going after her physical, physical children. We, for all we know, she doesn't have any. But even if she did, that's not what he means. He's talking about spiritual children. Those who've embraced her teaching are those within the church who have bought, bought her teaching are her children, right? This is why Jesus says to us, you know, you're adopted like my sons and my daughters. We're not biologically sons and daughters, but we are spiritually of Jesus Christ. Paul says to Timothy, you are my true son in the faith. He's not his biological son. Paul's not married. He's his spiritual son. So he says this, those of you who embraced her teaching, I'm going after you, and I'm going to take your life if you don't stop. That's a pretty powerful statement. But you know what? We've seen Jesus do this before. In, in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 11, when they were taking advantage of the communion table and were mistreating poorly, like they were letting their fellow believers go hungry and ignoring them and were getting drunk and making a mockery of communion. It actually says in 1 Corinthians 11 that he says, some of you have fallen asleep and have died because of, because of your behavior within the communion service. And Jesus says, like, I did it. I'm the one who did it. David understood that God could take physical uh, retribution against someone who was sinning. Listen to Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent about sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped at the heat of summer. 
The Lord took matters in his own hands with David when he was silent about sin. And he says, you know what, David? <laughs> you can try to pull this off all you want, but I'm going to make sure I get a hold of you. And there was a purpose behind it, this judgment. He says in verse um, uh, uh, 23, he says, So all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. Remember, the message is here to the seven churches. He, all the churches are tempted in the same ways, just like you and I are tempted in the same ways as they were. All of these things are relevant to us. And he wants to say, I want this to be public so that everyone knows that I see, my eyes are like a flaming torch. I see through all that's going on in your personal and corporate lives. But here's what's amazing about God's judgment. Like I said, it's not meant, this is like, for him to step in in this way, you have to have a real, real stubborn heart against God. Like a super, super stubborn heart. Because he's merciful and patient and gives you tons of time. That's why Jonah was so mad at God when he went to Nineveh. That's why he ran away from him and God had to like get him to where he needed to go. Because he said when, when God spared the Ninevites who were wicked, wicked people, Jonah says, I knew you were going to do that. I knew you'd spare them if they repented because you're a God who's compassionate and slow to anger. And it ticked him off. He, wanted, he was, he wanted, he was a, like a religious terrorist in a way. Jonah wanted those people dead for all their, their crimes against God and against humanity. And he says, I knew God, you, you'd let them go if they would repent and, bow and humble their hearts to you. And it ticked off his prophet. Again, God, Jesus will take it into his own hands if he has to. It is a twofold purpose in discipline, though. Uh, well, a threefold, one for people to know. But the other one is that it's really it's designed to bring singing, sinning believers back to living righteously. The whole purpose of discipline is restoration, right? That's why he says, I want them to repent. I want them to repent. The purpose is restoration with, to God and to the fellow community. But the other reason is actually to keep the church pure and to maintain God's standard of holiness. He doesn't want anything negative in the church that will influence it to, uh, to cause it to go, um, to cause it to be infected, basically, spiritually speaking. In 1 Corinthians 5, I preached on this a while ago, but I'll read you this quickly here. First Corinthians 5 and 6, when there was a case of immorality in the church, <coughs> the Corinthians had also tolerated it and let it go. And he says, um, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven, referring to sin, leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover has also been sacrificed. So in other words, you know, remove the sin out of your church because it's going to impact the whole church in the negative way. Just like leaven can influence the whole lump of dough and, and have a profound impact when it's so small, so can sin. And so he says, get it out because Christ is our Passover. In other words, he, this is an issue of forgiveness and purity and holiness. So again, I'll just, before we just move on here then, this is like super important, right? Because what we're learning here is the same lesson Pergamum had to learn. The church is to be inclusive of people and intolerant, sorry, tolerant to people in terms of ethnic identity, gender, social status, and past backgrounds and everything. 
whether they've been, how, no matter how wicked of sinners they've been or not. But we're not to be inclusive of all ideas, philosophy, and spiritual persuasions. When it comes to the truth of his word, Jesus is passionately tolerant about our intolerance. And I want to read you a quote from Rick Warren <laughs> that my mom sent me uh, after my last sermon. And I loved it. She says, our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear or hate them. The second is that to love someone means you agree with everything they believe or do. Both are nonsense. You, ha you, don't, have to be to, sorry, you don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate. Isn't that good? Isn't that the, that's the problem we are in our culture, isn't it? If I disagree with anybody, I'm, just, I'm told that I hate them. And then I have, or I must fear them. And if I truly love someone, I have to let them live how they want to live. Those are just absolute nonsensical lies. But that's the culture we live in. And so we don't have to compromise conviction to be compassionate. And Jesus is saying that to the church in Thyatira. He thinks that you can disagree with someone's lifestyle and not hate them. <laughs> he died for them. He loved them that much. And he believes that to love someone doesn't mean you agree with everything they say. He says, if you don't repent, I'm going to throw you in a bed of sickness. If you don't repent, I'm going to take your children from you. But God is the most compassionate being ever to live and walk this earth. So he had a command for them in verse 24 and 25. He said, but I say to you, the restaurant Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. The command actually sneaks back into 22, right? The command is actually to repent to the woman Jezebel and for the people who've embraced to repent as well. So it kind of goes back further. But the command is also for them not to be tolerant or to, to be to no longer tolerant. And he says there, I place no other burden on you. So in every area of Christian life, I am really proud of you, Jesus says. Keep going, he says. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. Keep going until I return. And of course, this is probably a reference to the second coming, which hasn't happened yet, but he still always spoke in ways that they would assume that he was. But again, the command was to repent, and the command was to hold fast to what they already had done or were doing. And so this was uh, important for the entire church. And then he promises rewards. There were rewards for doing so. There was a call to conquer in verse 26. He says, he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. As I also have received authority from my father and I will give him the morning star he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus uh, has two rewards here uh, for those who overcome, and both point to the same reality. Both are a picture of reigning with Christ and being in his presence. Really, it's a picture of eternal life and the promise of heaven. Now, the first one, this idea of um, giving him authority over nations and ruling them with a rod of iron, comes from Psalm chapter 2, 8 and 9. It's a messianic psalm that speaks of Christ's eternal kingdom in which he is going to rule and have final authority. 
And it's a kingdom that Jesus has been given. What's really cool about that uh, uh, verse in 8 and 9 is the verse 7 before it. In that psalm, it says in verse 7 that Christ is God's son. He says, you are my son. The very phrase he used to introduce himself in verse 18 as a son of God. So it's a significant psalm because he's, he's basically saying, it's me, the son of God, who has the authority to rule nations and the authority to, who's been given an eternal kingdom. He says, if you overcome and obey my teaching, you will reign with me. You will be with me in my kingdom to come. And secondly, he calls himself, um, or he refers to the morning star. He will give him the morning star. There's a lot of references to stars and stuff like that in the Old Testament. You can look up Numbers 24, 17, Daniel 12, 3. But there's no ambiguity as to what Jesus meant by this because he calls himself the morning star in Revelation 22, 16. And we'll finish with this. I'll read 22, 16 to you. At the end of his letter, almost the concluding words, he says this, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root of the descendant of David, the bright morning star. There's no ambiguity. Jesus says, I will give you the morning star if you overcome. In other words, I will give you myself. I will give you myself, my presence with you in eternity. What, no, there's no greater reward than that, hey? I've talked about this so many times from the pulpit, but I'll say it again for those of you who haven't heard it, if you're relatively new. When people say, I can't wait to go to heaven, and you ask them why, and they go, well, I hope there's golf there, or I can't wait to see my grandma. You've missed the point of heaven. You've missed heaven. If you can't wait to play golf, and you can't wait to see your grandma, as fun as those things are, and as cool as your grandma might be, heaven is about being with Jesus. Because he's the, he's the only reason why you're there in the first place. If you're in glory, it's only because of him. And so when you get there, the first person you'll want to see and the first person will probably greet you will be the Lord himself. And all worship will be centered around him. And we're going to pick that up in Revelation chapter 4. The opening scene when John's pulled into heaven is a throne room of worship to God and Christ the Lamb sitting on the throne. Amen. Okay, let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks again for another amazing time in your word. And we, we can't believe, well, we can believe actually now after nine years of how amazingly truthful of what you have to say is and how contemporary it is for our situations. We thank you that uh, in many ways nothing's new under the sun. So when we read things that happened 2,000 years ago, they help us navigate through our lives today and we can learn how to put them into practice. Thank you, God, the, that we learned in this passage how immense your grace is and how merciful you are that uh, you look at us with total patience and you, you seek to uh, work in our lives first with just uh, like gentle reminders and whatnot. But it takes a real stubborn heart, Lord, for you to step in and to do some pretty severe things. So we have to remind, just want to walk away from here knowing that you are a God of grace. And that's also why you went to Calvary, just to, as a demonstration of that. So yeah, we just want to give you thanks for what we've learned and and things we learned about you. And uh, yeah, may Genesis House be a church that grows in maturity and uh, that we're known for that. And you look at us with um, 
your heart and eyes, knowing that we are striving to honor you with every aspect of our lives. So we thank you for this time. Amen.